0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. In our program today, we continue with our series, The Fellowship of the Gospel with Dr. John Neufeld, with a message entitled, The Purpose of the Christian Life. So let's turn in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 16.
1: Author Philip Johnson is a fascinating man. Years ago, he wrote a groundbreaking book entitled Darwin on Trial, which is an effective critique of the Darwinian theory of evolution. His work was given rise to the intelligent design movement, which has brought the discussion of design into the scientific study of origins. You know, what's fascinating is that Johnson is not a scientist. Instead, he's a law professor. The premise of his book is simple. If the theory of evolution were being presented in a court of law, would there be enough evidence to convict? So his analysis is from the perspective of law and evidence. It's really a fascinating read. But how did Johnson become involved in this? In an interview with the media, Johnson says that it all began years ago in the fall of 1987 while he was on sabbatical in England. Even though he was successful and had published in the area of criminal law and philosophy, he couldn't shake the idea, in his words, that he had used his first-class mind for only second-class occupations. He told his wife that he needed something to do for the rest of his life, something that was worthwhile. And it was with this unease, this sense of lacking in purpose, that started him on the road to a discovery of his mission in life. Now, how many of you know that purpose is fundamental to our existence? You see, some people feel that self-esteem is what they need the most, and so the great achievement of life is to discover your self-worth. Now, that's very popular today, even in some religious circles, but I've never quite bought into that. Others think that the great achievement of a lifetime is seen in things like success of your endeavors or wealth or happiness— I actually think that all of those also are dead ends. Show me a man or a woman who has a great self-esteem, lots of money, and has achieved a measure of success and has no sense of their God-designed purpose, and I'll show you a wasted life. I think that it is one of the reasons why we have so many psychological problems in our culture. What's missing in life is a clearly articulated, God-designed purpose for living. So when we ask the question of the purpose of the Christian life, we're asking the question of the purpose of life in general. We've been studying Philippians, and and Paul, the author of the book, has put the purpose of life into one statement. In verse 10, he simply says, I want to know Christ. In fact, in order to gain that purpose, he has gladly sacrificed all other things. He sacrificed his reputation in his culture. He sacrificed what would have been a fine academic career as a teacher of the Mosaic law. He sacrificed his comfort, and by the time we get to the book of Philippians, he has sacrificed his freedom, and he's now a prisoner. But he counts all that as rubbish, he says. He has wanted to gain Christ, and more, he has wanted to know him fully and perfectly and completely. All other things are secondary. In order to illustrate this quest, he sets out two images, which we're going to read about in this text. The first is an image of aggression, such as when you get a battle. The second is the image of a foot race. Now, both images suggest competition and struggle and training and resolve and sacrifice. Now, depending on your worldview, those may seem to be strange images when it comes to knowing Christ completely. That's because we assume that knowing Christ completely happens after you die. Then you'll be raised with him and stand before him and see him as he is. And that's true. But something is amiss. Many of us assume that knowing Christ completely requires faithfulness and waiting, not aggression and competition and struggle and resolve and sacrifice. Do you see the problem? So today, let's clear up the fog. What does a God-designed purpose look like? I'm reading from Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 16. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Now, what I want us to grasp is not just that this was Paul's way of thinking about life. He is sharing this as a template for every single believer— This is what life is supposed to look like. So let's begin. How do I live my life with a purpose rather than just drifting through life without a clear sense of personal mission? And the answer is threefold. First, you need to be clear on your purpose in living. It is so that you might know Christ completely. Kent Hughes put it this way. You have a lifelong task, he says. It is the relentless pursuit of an ever-deepening, ever-widening personal knowledge of the Christ whom you have already known. Maybe you should put that on a sign somewhere, in your, in your office or home or your workstation. My reason for existing is the relentless pursuit of an ever-deepening, ever-widening personal knowledge of the Jesus I came to know at my conversion. Any other interest or passion that you have must be considered subservient to that one goal. If you have an interest in motorcycles or sports or embroidery or personal fitness, one of your tasks is to make sure that interest is not even close to your passion. You might say, I have an interest in molecular biology, but I have a passion regarding a relentless pursuit of an ever-deepening, ever-widening personal knowledge of the Christ I came to know at my conversion. Now, it may be that we need to fill in the details of what that means. We need content to that statement. It might be that we say yes to that, but can't really put it together. How does that work out in everyday life? When I go to work, when I watch TV, when I read a book, when I make love to my spouse, when I plan my summer vacation, how does a relentless pursuit of Christ infuse all of my life so that I have purpose in everything? ah That's the question. But before we're ever able to answer that, you must first decide on that first purpose of your life. Now, are we ready for the second premise? You must reject the notion that you've arrived. That's why in verse 12, Paul says, Not that I have already obtained this. Now, most of us will say, Well, that's not my problem. I don't think I've arrived at the Christian life. True? But it can be a temptation. Let me give some illustrations. When Paul wrote the Corinthian church, you'll remember that many of them kind of felt that way. For instance, do you remember at the beginning of the book, some of them said, I follow Paul or I follow Peter or I follow Apollos. Each of them had a favorite teacher and they could quote their favorite teacher and in some way feel joined to that teacher and feel superior. You know, some of us do that today. We see our reason for pride to the Christian teachers we're attached to, and we feel superior to others, and even complete in some way. Or consider the next example in the church in Corinth. It was common to boast in that church and to say, I have knowledge. Paul had to tell them, if anyone imagined that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. What Paul meant is that true knowledge had to be combined with love. But how easy it is to think that, you know, my theology is great and I've arrived because I have my doctrines sorted out. That's example number two from Corinth. Let's use a third example from Corinth. Remember how many spiritual gifts were operating there and including tongues and healing and prophecy and miracles. And they knew they were spirit-filled and operating in the gifts. How easy to say, I've arrived. I speak in tongues and I have prophetic gifts. See, all I'm saying is that the goal is not the gifts, not knowledge, not perfect theology, not quoting your perfect teacher. Your goal is a relentless pursuit of an ever-deepening, ever-widening knowledge of the Christ you came to know at your conversion. And I am far from being there. I want to know him. So if I know my purpose and can say I've not achieved it, then one more thing should be added. You must accept the notion that in order to grow in your knowledge of Christ— You must act decisively. Paul says, I press on. I love the way the New American Standard Bible says it because I think it says it almost literally from the Greek. It says, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Now that word, lay hold, is the Greek word lambano, which means to acquire something through significant effort or even to get something after a pursuit. I mean, if you think of a detective movie in which a policeman pursues a suspect and then finally catches up to him and tackles him. Or in the ancient world, this word was used of an army that was in hot pursuit of another army, waiting to seize and then to defeat them. So this is the idea that Paul has. In this way, God has pursued me. And now, in the same way, I must begin to pursue God. And when we come back, we'll see how that works out.
0: To the Christian, what is the ultimate goal? It's imperative that we continue in this lifelong quest of knowing Christ. Otherwise, we can easily start to drift away from our faith. But here Paul reminds us that it will take persistent effort and that this knowledge of Christ must be our highest priority. So what does this look like practically? Well, when we come back, Dr. Neufeld will help us see how we can live in light of this purpose. Sarah wrote, Dr. Neufeld brings scripture to life with depth, practicality, challenge, and hope. The world has changed. Technology has made everything closer. Ministries have changed and yet Back to the Bible has remained constant in its values and teaching. You do a marvelous work and I look forward to hearing you every day. Well, messages like this help us feel we're hitting the mark. And with God's blessing, people of every age and background are being impacted through faithful Bible teaching. Our special thanks to all those who listen and support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. So please continue to stand with us with your prayers and gifts and Back to the Bible Canada will continue to do all it can to impact lives with the gospel. You can join us in this effort with your financial support by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or by visiting backtothebible.ca.
1: In verse 12, Paul tells us that at his conversion, Christ pursued him. And here Paul is referring to what happened to him on the road to Damascus. They're like a mighty army pursuing another, God caught up to him, cornered him, and laid hold of him. And by the way, that's my conversion story, and if you're saved, that's yours as well. So in the same aggressive way as Christ pursued you, Paul says, now pursue Christ. It's going to take great effort. You might have to march after your foe all night long. It may cost you money and time and other interests and all other distractions. It doesn't matter. Press on. Don't let this escape you. That's the drama of verse 12. Now, up until now, Paul has not filled in the details. We should be asking practically, but how does that work? Well, look again at verse 13. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Now, notice the words, I do just one thing. And because Paul is about to give us the image of a runner and an athlete, this language makes sense. See, all successful athletes have one thing in common. They are single-minded. They may be talented, but that talent is never enough. You know, it's said of Wayne Gretzky, arguably the best athlete ever to play the game of hockey, that when he was a young boy, his dad actually built a small skating rink in the backyard. Young Wayne would be out there long after dark, to the very point of bedtime, practicing one move over and over and over again, day after day, week after week, until he got it right. And when you saw him on the ice, what you saw was the product of practicing that move for hundreds, maybe even thousands of hours. See, all good athletes have that single-mindedness. They're about one thing. So for Paul, what is that one thing? And he answers, forgetting what lies behind and straining to what is ahead. Now, we've moved to the image of an athletic race. Let me illustrate. Years ago, a great event happened in the city of Vancouver. It was called the Miracle Mile. Two runners, the only two runners in the world at that time, who had ever broken the four-minute mile, met at Empire Stadium in Vancouver on August 7, 1954. The world watched as John Landy and Roger Bannister raced against each other. At the very end of the race, Landy, who was leading, turned his head to see where Bannister was, and in that short movement, he lost just a half a step. And that was all that it took for Bannister to run right by him and win the race. The lesson? Don't look back. Just keep pressing on. Looking back, says Paul, is devastating for a runner. But what does Paul have in mind? You know, some of us have misunderstood what he is saying. Some think he must mean his past sins, or others suggest he might mean forgetting all the advantages he had before he was a Christian. But both of those, I think, are not correct. What Paul has in mind are his successes, the progress he has already made. The man who has given up all to follow Christ, a man who has planted churches all throughout Asia Minor and is now partnering with the Philippian churches to plant churches in Europe. A man who knew what it was to suffer for Jesus is saying, I'm not looking back and reflecting on past glory. Now, if anyone had the right to do that, well, it was Paul. He had left behind him a trail of faithfulness to Jesus. And it's not as if he doesn't remember that. It's that he's not satisfied with that. There is in him a single-minded persistence to make Jesus known. So if Paul's telling us to be single-minded in this persistence to know Christ, He's telling us, never take your foot off the gas. Strain to what lies ahead. There's a word here for all of us, but perhaps there's a greater word for those of us who are older. See, a great temptation can be that we spend our last years in this life merely coasting. I mean, how many elderly Christians have dropped out, gone on permanent vacation from a zeal that used to consume them for gospel advancement? I see it all the time active at one time, living with ease in the present, forgetting the goal. See, listen to the words of an ancient Christian. His name was Bernard of Clairvaux, an, an extraordinary Christian from the 12th century. In his great hymn entitled, O Sacred Head Now Wounded, he recounts all that Christ had done for him on the cross and then ends with these words, O make me thine forever, and should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never, Outlive my love for thee. You know, to those who find their passion for Christ waning, Paul helps us in verse 14 when he says, I press on to the goal, or we could say, I am charging full steam ahead toward a goal for the purpose of winning the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So I want us to notice those two words. One is the word goal, and the other is the word prize. I'm pressing on for the goal, but I'm trying to win not the goal. I'm trying to win the prize. So what's the difference? Well, look at it this way. If you're a hockey player in the NHL, the goal you must set before yourself and your team is actually quite simple. The goal is to win your last playoff game. But that's not the prize. The prize is to be presented with the Stanley Cup and be crowned as a champion. So let's put it into what Paul is sharing about his purpose. For him, the goal has been to relentlessly pursue gospel ministry and move the gospel forward into the heart of Rome. That was his goal. And that's the drama of this book. Paul and the Philippians partnering together to bring the gospel into the heart of the Roman Empire. But that's not the prize. His prize is the fullness of blessing and rewards in the age to come. The upward call of God when Paul will enter into perfect fellowship with Christ forever. The prize in serving Christ is to know Christ. See, if your service to Christ, if ministry, if accomplishing things for the gospel is your prize, you are in danger of becoming an idolater. If, however, we serve and evangelize and use our gifts for the gospel so that we might know Christ, we have it right. See, I hope you see how crucial this is. The goal is not the prize. Never forget that. Our prize is not the people we win to Christ. Our prize is the knowledge of Christ. You see what's going on here? Ministry, service, evangelism, winning more and more people in Canada to Christ are ministry goals. And might I add, they are means to the prize. If you aren't serving Christ, you won't know Christ well. So Paul holds no sympathy for the person who says that he or she wants to know Christ, but will not serve Christ. But Paul wants us to remember that the treasure, the great bounty, the wonder we live for, is that we might know Him who is worth everything. Now to verses 15 and 16. Let those who are mature think this way. And if you don't, let God reveal this to you. And then he adds, Only hold true to what you have obtained. In other words, make your ministry and service merely a means to an end. The reason I pour myself out in gospel ministry to the point of counting all other things as rubbish is so that I might know and understand and believe and be intimate with and enter more deeply into and knowledge of Christ. But whatever else happens, don't go backwards. Never stop serving Him with the purpose of knowing Him. Don't forget your purpose. Don't ever get to the place where your love for Christ and your progress in knowing Christ is a thing in your past. See, if it is, here's what you need to do. You need to press forward. Don't stop. Know Christ and the power of His resurrection. Know what it is to make sacrifices for Jesus, for He sacrificed for you. Act decisively. Make your reason for existing, the relentless pursuit of an ever-deepening, ever-widening personal knowledge of the Jesus you came to know at your conversion. Count everything else as dung. Oh, Heavenly Father, that I might know Christ, that I might perceive him even now, that I might understand him fully. O oh, Lord, make this my prize in his matchless name. Amen.
0: John, this has been a great message for the individual, a great challenge to them, but perhaps even to the pastor in the church as well, as we pursue things that maybe not the things we ought to be pursuing, or that shouldn't define our success anyways. What do you think?
1: There's been many a pastor who has spent a lifetime of ministry, winning people to Christ, preparing sermons, counseling, and finding themselves alienated from God and, and unable to pray. Uh, you know, on that note, Ben, I, I remember taking a class from a very well-known Old Testament professor who had been involved in one of the very famous Bible translations, and he said that after the entire translation was put together and the Bible was now put on market, he said, I never felt more distant from God than I ever did in any other time in my life. I was so busy. Working with Hebrew words and phrases and grammatical forms, he said, I had forgotten to pray and to worship and to do all that stuff. Well, that's not only true of professors, it's true of pastors. I mean, you know, there are so many pastors who haven't taken the time to pray and to worship and to find Christ their delight. They got into ministry because they found Christ their delight. But somewhere along the way, the demands of their ministry has been everything. And so they produced and met the grade and looked good in the eyes of others but they stopped knowing Christ. I mean, that's the ultimate tragedy of all of ministry. I hope that today's
0: teaching on the purpose of the Christian life has blessed you as much as it has me. No matter where you're at in your faith, we must be relentless in our pursuit of an increasing knowledge of God. This is the purpose and the prize to which we're called. Be sure to join us next week as Dr. Neufeld begins the fifth and final week in the book of Philippians. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day.
2: Hi, this is Joshua from In Doubt, a ministry of Back to the Bible Canada. Every week, In Doubt invites young adults into a conversation about the very real and challenging questions of faith, life, and culture. Our goal is to confront life's issues with the help of guest pastors and Christian leaders, and to dive into the Bible to discover its truth and relevance for living life as a follower of Jesus. Join myself, Daniel, or Isaac every week along with special guests from around the globe to discuss things that matter most to you. InDoubt can be heard through our podcast, mobile app, or on radio, and you can check out all of our programs and resources at inDoubt.ca. InDoubt is a ministry of Back to the Bible Canada and possible only through the generous gifts of those who share our heart to engage a new generation with the Bible. For more information, or if you would like to support InDoubt with a financial gift, call us at 1 800 663 2425 or visit inDoubt.ca.